is that a forbidding me to call you Scotty? Because it's hard for me as an Italian guy not to put that IE on the end of everything. Yeah, it's not forbidden, but uh, it, let's, it's let's stay it's, away from it if possible. Yeah, I mean, since nobody does, it would just it's just weird. But it's good. You can call me Robert. Then sounds like an athlete, you know, to me, and maybe I don't know why. It's like you know, starting at second base, Scotty Linscombe. But I won't. I. I'm going to try very, very hard to not call you that. You're hating this podcast already, aren't you? <laughs> no, it's, I mean, honestly, it's not like I'd be pissed about it. It just, it would be uh, an odd, it would be odd. That's okay. <laughs> if you worked on the trading floor with us, we'd call you that. Welcome to the Futures Edge Podcast. I'm Jim Urio. As always, Bob Iacchino, brains behind the operation and co-host. Today, very excited about this, by the way. And again, as I've said a million times, you can think Bobby and I are full shit, but you cannot deny the fact that we get high-end guests. Today, we have a Senior Vice President of Economics and Trade for the Cato Institute. Yes, that Cato Institute that we're all big fans of. So, Scott, our fan base here are, well, our, they're not fans in the traditional sense of fanboys, but they're a big libertarian audience. This is an excellent audience for you, I think. But first, we have to do some silliness before we go. Where are you located? Are you dogs or cats, beaches or mountains? Tell us about yourself. Uh, I am located in Raleigh, North Carolina. But, of course, Cato is in Washington. I'm an OG remote worker. I've actually been working remotely down here in Raleigh since 2010. And uh, you're never going to get me in the office ever again, at least <laughs> not on a regular basis. For you. Uh, <laughs> I uh, am firmly and wholeheartedly a dog guy, not only because I just like dogs better, but also I'm allergic to cats. So uh, that, that, yeah. Bullshit. That's what you just tell your wife so she doesn't push the cats, right? Yeah. And fortunately, I've already brainwashed my daughter into hating cats too. So it all works out well. <laughs> I have two dogs that are actually sitting right over there sleeping nice. on the couch like they always do. And uh, I am a... A mountains guy, but I actually enjoy the beach in the winter um, because there's nobody there. Um, one of my mm -hmm. big complaints about the beach is that you're just packed shoulder to shoulder with a bunch of sweaty other people fighting traffic uh, on the bridges or tunnels or whatever you need to do to get to the beaches. It's miserable, uh, <laughs> whereas the mountains are quiet and there are fewer bugs. I'm a, I hate mosquitoes because they love me. Yeah. I have a, a mountain place um, in Tabernacle, Colorado, which is near Winter Park, and I like it so much better in July and August there just to just to go on big hikes, yeah. you know, sit, drink wine, watching the sunset. I like skiing, but skiing is too much shit to carry. You yeah, I mean? that's why I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. And in my and at my age, um, my vacations, I want to not do stuff and I don't want to do stuff. And skiing is a lot of work. Yeah, I'd prefer to just sit around and, and like you said, drink wine and, and do that kind of stuff. Um, Bobby, do you have any any more of the frivolous questions before we get to the meat of it? Uh, no, I'm just I'm impressed fully by the dog part and the brainwashing his daughter part because I, by the yeah. way, I've never had a wife that has pressured me to get a cat. Uh, my current wife, which is my last wife, is pressuring me to get every animal on the planet we had a bear climb out of the wood. I live in Southwest Florida, Scott. So we had a bear okay. climb into our backyard the other day, black bear, right? She wanted to go out and hug it. I'm like, it's adorable, but it's a fucking bear. Yeah. So yeah. Let's, just, let's just back up. <laughs> let's just let's go back inside. Yeah. All right. What are the dog's names? Last question. Ivy is the old one. Uh, Rosie is the pup. Rosie. So both after growing things, Ivy is kind of a flower, right? Or whatever. Yeah. Although it's funny. Um, we didn't even realize that when uh, we named her, we got her from a kennel on Ivy Road and we just liked the name and it's Ivy E-Y. And that's what we named her. That's excellent. Mine is named, it's full, her full name is Peyton Butkus Urio. And that's what my wife named her and called her, which I think is nice when you have a wife that's a solid football fan. So I'm right. Right. That's great. Um, my first question is going to be, about uh, the dollar. You know, we've had Brent Johnson on our show. We've had Luke Roman on our show. We've had a lot of guys who have some difference of opinions, not those two particularly. When you see central banks around the globe stockpiling gold, do you, do you believe in the de-dollarization story? Is it just a myth? 
I, I, I don't think it's a myth, but I think magnitude is what's important. You know, it's undoubtedly true that uh, a combination of fiscal incontinence in the United States and the weaponization of the dollar for international sanctions has caused China, Russia, and others to reconsider how many dollars they're holding, right? But the reality is that still a large majority of international trade is conducted in dollars. You know, you still have the dollar being the dominant reserve currency by a significant margin. And quite frankly, the lack of available alternatives, Bitcoiners don't get mad at me out there, but the reality is that uh, at this point, um, you know, you're the short, you're the tallest midget, right? When it comes to the dollar. So, you know, certainly those type of institutional or inherent characteristics of the dollar make it really, really difficult for me to see a near-term future in which we actually have a major de-dollarization. So certainly, I mean, if you look at what China is doing and others, the holdings are, are, are diminishing a bit, but, but to what extent? That's a big question. So you, you said the weaponizing of the dollar, and I can only mean, and this is for the people listening to, freezing up Russia's accounts, booting them out of the SWIFT payment system, all yep. that, and considering doing even more. Do you think big deal, little deal, no deal? Was that, is that one of the bigger deals you've seen as far as dollar hegemony, as far as being the arbiter of the world trade? You can't do bullshit like that. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I, I, the, certainly the SWIFT move was a step up. But, you know, United States has been weaponizing. And to be clear, I don't really use the term weaponizing as a pejorative, right? It's just that's what it is. They're using it as a, a, a tool of economic statecraft. And it, it's a, a weapon. And, and But they've been doing that for quite a while. Um, you've seen a really significant increase in the role of financial sanctions because, quite frankly, unilateral goods sanctions don't really work. So, And financial sanctions are can be a bit more effective and certainly when applied in unison with other countries. Um, but you saw it in Iran and you've seen it elsewhere. And so it's just, I think that was the swift move was a bit of an escalation in that regard, but, uh, you know, really uh, along the same general path. Scott, I was looking at your uh, questions for 2024 that you put out <laughs> and uh, I read your 2023 questions as well. And I did something very similar where I was asked to do a, a quick interview about my risks for 2024. And I threw in there that the risk for 2023 was that inflation did not come down. Yeah. And the risk for 2024 was that it goes back up. Yeah. Is that too simplistic or do you see anything to that? Because you mentioned inflation and what the market might be pricing in from the Fed. I don't really see much chance of a substantial increase in inflation. I, I think the bigger risk is that it just stays where it is, right? And, you know, we have all this discussion on on Twitter and elsewhere, right, that, that we've beaten inflation. And there's some truth to that. I mean, look, you know, it's gone down a lot in the last year or so, but it's still well above that kind of 2% benchmark that the Fed has. And so, and it seems... Based on the latest data, to have kind of stopped going down, right? It's kind of hanging out around three, three plus percent. That's that's I think an issue for the kind of we've conquered inflation narrative. So while I don't see a, a major increase on the horizon because I think we have deflationary pressures, particularly in China, related to just demographics and kind of getting some of that fiscal spend out of the system. That seems to be some headwinds that I think would prevent a really major spike. And then also other things like in the United States, we have a lot of new construction and housing coming online, which is is good um, for, for that uh, sector. So, but um, ringing out that last one and a half percentage points or so, that seems like the the bigger risk and challenge and one that might delay a lot of the Fed rate cuts that everybody's already priced in. So kind of a two-part follow-up. I We talk a lot about Mike Tyson on this show, believe it or not, because he just has said so many funny things. And one of the things that I liken this to, and people told me that wasn't a good comparison, was that Tyson knocked out about the first 26 or 27 of his opponents inside of three rounds. And when uh, James Bonecrusher Smith went the distance with him, people, that's how I see inflation now. It's like inflation has not been knocked out, has not been beaten. 
but it it's certainly doesn't look invincible Frazier. at this point. Is that yeah. fair to say? Yeah, I think that's about right. We the and it's you know the last mile uh, could very well be the toughest part, uh, especially if you think as as I do that um, you know a chunk of the inflation we experienced post in the kind of post pandemic period or pandemic period whatever we call it was supply chain related, right? And those right. have really cleared up. So now we're dealing with that kind of embedded, uh, whether it's expectations or price spiral, whatever you want to call it, right? That could be a really much tougher. So the second part to the question then is, what would it take in your view? So we've got geopolitics in our crosshairs, right? Hasn't really affected much yet, the Red Sea, for example. Um, is it that or is it, uh, by my count, we still have wage growth running about 5.3%. Does it have to be that goods inflation uh, ramps up again or that wage inflation sort of continues at the rate it's at? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't see, even with a lot of the geopolitical stuff and Red Sea stuff, I don't see a huge risk of major goods inflation. You know, okay. it really does seem like... The goods inflation we experienced, which was very atypical, right? I mean, thanks to good old globalization, uh, you know, goods, most tradable goods are, have been trending down on a real basis for a good while now, um, or they've been flat, right? So, uh, you know, TVs being the ultimate example. It seems that the pandemic was truly a unique period in which we were all stuck in our homes and couldn't consume services. We all got a bunch of government checks and we wanted to buy furniture or televisions or whatever, computers to, to work from home. And we just, and of course the ports were all locked up and the ships weren't sailing and the rest, you know, even with the Red Sea and other stuff. I mean, you see global shippers are already rerouting their ships. They're turning to planes. Uh, supply chains are amazingly nimble because they have to be. Um, and so it, it strikes me as unlikely. You know, there might be a, a, a little bit of a, a, a increase, but nothing that I think would be nearly as big of a risk as, as either wage or services side uh, issues. Bobby, why is everything so expensive? Just to, to put some, a point on this, I haven't brought my lunch to work in 20 years. And my three eggs and bacon used to cost seven bucks. Now they cost 14 bucks. My wireless bill was so expensive. Why the heck is wireless so expensive? I don't know. I mean, it feels like a car payment from 10 years ago. What you pay for wireless now? I mean, what are you paying all that money for? Is it speed, coverage, data? Is it this 5G that we all needed access to? Unlimited talk and text, which I feel like we've had forever. Mobile hotspots, which I don't use all that much. What are we paying all that money for? This is not going to come as a surprise to you, but we have the answer right here on the Futures Edge podcast because the Futures Edge podcast is partnering with Mint Mobile. Mint Mobile offers all these features for as low as $15 per month. It's built on the nation's largest 5G network. The reason it keeps costs low is because they sell direct to you online. They cut out the retail stores. They cut out the salespeople. It's just a much more efficient process. Like why should anybody have to pay more than you have to for access to the same exact network? Go to mintmobile.com slash futures edge. Also linked in the show description to get a premium wireless service for, you ready for it? 15 bucks a month. Okay, and if you're like people who are old, like Bobby and I, we don't like to change anything. We don't like our routines to change. Now, is, you want to know how hard it is to switch your service? Well, the big wireless companies want you to think it's really hard. But switching to Mint Mobile super easy thanks to their digital eSIM card, which most phones now have. You can sign up and activate immediately right on your phone from the comfort of your home. If your phone doesn't have an eSIM, Mint will ship you a new SIM card for free. How about that? You know, Jimmy and I talk about not wanting anyone to tell us what to do, that sort of libertarian bent that we both have. Well, Big Wireless wants you to think they're the only option. So do not be fooled. Go to mintmobile.com slash futures edge. Also, again, linked in the show description and stop paying more than you have to for your phone plan. By the way, now through the end of January, new customers can get any plan for just 15 bucks a month when they purchase three months or more. This includes the unlimited plan, which is normally $30 a month. So not only are you going to save the difference between your current plan and Mint Mobile's normal pricing, but you're going to save $45 for three months or more if you sign up for more versus Mint's own normally low prices. Complete no-brainer. Don't even think about it. Go to mintmobile.com forward slash futuresedge. 
but maybe you should wait till after you watch the podcast. We don't want you guys leaving the podcast right now. So watch the podcast first and then go to Mint Mobile and hit that link. Thank you, guys. I'm giving a speech in Arizona next week. And here's what I think the biggest risk is, although I don't think it's the top of the mountain risk. I think there's a chance of it. And I want to hear your opinion on it. So over the last two months, it seemed like every time the Treasury went to sell any duration further than seven years, didn't go quite as planned, except for the one time it went okay, the most recent. So they've, you know, understandably gone to the short end of the curve to try to suck everything out of the repo markets, which is fine. And that's what that, the reserves there are declining, declining, declining. When that begins to happen, that they have to start off issuing longer duration, I believe that it's going to push, it could push longer term rates up to a level that they don't want. The Fed yeah. comes back in, starts QE. When the Fed, if they don't, they'll replace Chairman Powell and find someone who will, Lyle Brainerd. Um, <laughs> if, if the Fed does that, then I think that'll hurt the currency, not against the euro and the yen. I hate, I hate the dollar index. I'm talking about the actual value of the currency. And, and for that reason, I'm long Bitcoin, silver, gold, platinum, palladium, shit like that. Do you think that that's a real concern? You know, I got to say, um, first, I mean, we're kind of pushing out of my uh, comfort zone. Um, but, you know, I still look at the general consensus of very weak growth that just strikes me that, you know, we're looking at couple percentage point growth outside of you know, in, in basically most of the global economy, which just doesn't strike me. Again, these kind of deflationary headwinds, right? That, that seem like it's just not a, an environment for really rapid uh, inflation, regardless of those types of things. Off of that, what is going on with the jobs market? And I mean, I can be more specific, but I think you're ready with that question. Yeah, no. And, and you read my, since you read my 2024 yep. preview, I mean, this is, I think, one of the big question marks in the U.S. economy right now, because we have um, two different reports, you know, the establishment survey and the other yep. that are just a household survey that are telling two very different stories about the economy. Establishment survey looks pretty decent, at least as a top line household was a disaster last month, right? I mean, it numbers that, and now granted, it's about household has been wonkier. It has been a lot more erratic. Um, so that's, I think, a big issue. But the other issue is even when you dig into the establishment survey, you see some weird things that don't indicate strength. You know, most, uh, more than a million jobs created last year were in acyclical industries that have nothing to do with growth, government, healthcare, that kind of stuff. Recently, there's been big increases in leisure hospitality, but that's kind of post-pandemic recovery stuff. If And then if you look at other sectors like manufacturing, it's basically stagnant. So I think the big question mark is what the heck happens this year, given all this noise, um, I, I wouldn't call it a weak labor market. Um, you know, if you believe the job openings numbers, and I mean, there's reason to think they might be off a little bit, but they're still historically elevated, indicating there's still a lot of labor demand. If you look at where even with those household declines for employment and participation, we're still in a pretty good place relative to the pre-pandemic. I mean, it just doesn't, it, it doesn't look like it's, it's terrible, but it's really hard to say. So you, you just said, if you believe those numbers, yeah. do you believe those numbers? Yeah. I mean, I, I generally believe them. I mean, I tend to be like a Hanlon's razor guy or, you know, a, yeah. a Occam's razor guy, right? That the more likely, the simplest answer is the most likely. And I think that when it comes to labor market data and stuff from the BLS, this is not a, you know, grand conspiracy or even um, an intentional thumbing or anything. It's just simply really, really hard to do surveys during the pandemic for all sorts of reasons. <clears throat> explosion in self-employment, explosion in gig work, a and then just seasonality issues. I mean, being a labor market BLS economist during the last three years has got to be just impossible, right? You know, and the revisions we've seen are all over the place. Um, they're flattening out a bit, but they're still uh, kind of, we're pretty messy in the view of, I mean, I, I guess I say just to make a long story short, I trust the general direction 
if not the you know the actual number, right? Um, that you know it could be off by a little bit, but they seem to be going in the right direction. I think it's pretty well intentioned misses. Okay, that's a quick follow up. When you look at the Fed, current makeup of the Fed, you factor in that they didn't start tightening until confirmation was final, literally the day after com- his confirmation was final. And now in an election year, some of the uh, congressmen, Rokana, is that is the guy's name, starts pressuring yep. him saying, if you don't ease rates, you're going to be responsible for Donald Trump. So my question is obvious, is the Fed political and is some of their behavior politically based? Yeah, I mean, I think inevitably the there's some politicization in the fed i mean i my general view you know being being libertarian right uh but i'm a bit of a squish on this i mean i i think that you know certainly i would love to see something like ngd ngdp targeting where we take a lot of the discretion out of the fed and, and it's much more automatic framework right but we're not there at the same time and and i and i'd add that look political appointees are political <laughs> I mean, it's inevitably the case. Anybody in Washington knows that even the most well-intentioned political appointee, whether it is in the law or at the Fed or in the bureaucracy or whatever, is going to have a political background. You know, you're never just pulling some some guy off off the street, some academic. I mean, these these are people who are involved in politics. So there's inevitably some politicization in that. But at the same time, I'm also not worried that it's a political, the Fed's a political machine, right? That they're only worried about politics. They can be pressured by politicians. I mean, I think Trump did some of that during the, you know, the end of his Absolutely. term, right? Yes. And and so it's certainly not one side or the other. But uh, I mean, I think they're trying to stay apolitical, if only for, you know, kind of institutional credibility reasons. So Scott, back to the uh, things for 2024. And by the way, if anybody wants to read that, you can find it at cato.org. C-A-T-O.org, and you get to forward slash commentary if you want to get there quicker. You said something that struck me as I was reading it. Well, you didn't say it. You wrote it. The Institute for Supply Management Surveys of Services and Manufacturing Managers has gotten much more pessimistic. Workers are quitting much less often, typically what happens as recessions approach, and employees are hiring less too. Now, also based on our work uh, over Path Trading Partners, we find, and I think it's pretty easy work to be done, that most recessions begin after the inverted yield curve starts to, let's just call it normalizing, because Jimmy and I have this thing where we're annoyed by the flattening, cover, or the now steepening, flattening, because it went from very steeply negative to more flat, even though that's oh, technically steepening, right? So anyway, so we're seeing, based off of that, I'm seeing two things. I don't want to predict a recession because I predicted one in 2023 and I was wrong. So is yeah. it safe to predict one in 2024 or are you staying away from that too? No, I'm definitely – well, look, you know, if you look at – well, first let me let me disclaimer. Nobody knows anything, right? I mean, no, more seriously um, – Good disclaimer. We use that we all know the time. everything. Well, all of the data are lagged, right? I mean, except right. for these very – novel real-time measures, lagged data are notorious. I mean, what can you do, right? Even your surveys from it's, it's last month, middle of the month or whatever. So it's always a little bit tough. But in general, look, if you look at the recession indicators that the uh, NBER uses, they're still pretty firmly in expansion territory. And they're all firmly, it's like what, six or seven indicators, and they're all pretty firmly in expansion territory. You combine that with generally kind of the top line figures, and it just doesn't appear that a recession is is uh, forthcoming, right? But, and this is the big but, like you said, when you, ta- when you look at the surveys of managers on the ground, you are seeing a lot more softness. And the question mark I have about, is this a recession? Is it not a recession? All this kind of stuff is, do all of those rate hikes kind of bite all at once, right? Is this a, every, you go bankrupt uh, slowly and then all at once, right? Is that, mm-hmm. is that kind of what happens here? Are people on the ground, these manager surveys and the rest, are they really seeing, you know, three months, six month outlook looks really terrible and that's why they're all pessimistic. Whereas economists in DC are seeing lagged data and they think, oh, everything's fine. So I, I do think there's a risk. It certainly doesn't look like it at the moment. So you, you say no way six radies is in 2024. Is that your base case? I would be surprised at that. 
Um, okay. I, another quick question. You talked about lag data. When you look at the CPI that we just saw on the 13th, you know, that the shelter component of it, and correct me if I'm wrong in any of this, is a third of the market. Yep. Of that rent and owner's equivalent rent are 95% of the shelter. Owner's equivalent rent is a survey where you call people and say, if you're going to rent your place, what would you rent it for? How yeah. are these people going to notice tre trend changes? Is that a reasonable uh, complaint? Yeah, we I mean, we have a lot of problems in the shelter component of CPI to the at least in the private market. And I think the Fed is incorporating some of this, too. Um, you know, thanks to good old things like Redfin and Zillow, we're getting a better idea of rents in real time. And but we're finding is that the CPI, the inflation component of shelter tends to be lagged by almost a year uh, behind the, the real time. And so, yeah, it, there certainly are big issues, I think, with just looking at the CPI number and going, aha, you know, inflation is this. I mean, we really have to, you have to be a, a, a bit more creative, but, but that does indicate that inflation is actually lower. I mean, if you're, if you're kind of on the dovish soft landing side of things, like the guys at Goldman are, they say, we expect seeing major declines in shelter inflation over the next, you know, six to 10 months because we're looking at these private market indicators that are, that are indicating that as much. How did our economy withstand the punch of higher interest rates for so long? I, for years, I thought we were addicted to low interest rates. How did it, how did it happen? It's a, well, I think a big part of it was, uh, you know, to, to, to borrow a bit from the team transitory folks, it was that, you know, a, a good chunk of our inflation was not related to demand side at all. You know, that's, I think, part of it. You know, if it, if you have supply chain and other supply side issues, and it's a huge debate about how much of inflation was that, but if, it, if you had some, rate hikes aren't going to touch that. Um, the other one that I think has been discussed a bit, and it, it, it personally resonates, is that, um, you know, a lot of us locked in our mortgages and our auto loans and insulation, we like to call it. <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, I mean, I am, I am, I, I own my car, my house, I refinance my house at the, about the bottom. Woohoo. And so I'm, I'm pretty insulated from, from this stuff. And I think a lot of folks are, particularly given when you add in the fact that whether because we were all trapped at home or because of federal, you know, uh, checks, people paid off some debt as well. So there's a little bit less revolving credit. So, you know, you put it all together and it and rate hikes have not had the bite that they may they would have had, I think, you know, in a normal recession. So I actually I have a quick something I want you both to comment. And then I have an actual real question. We talk about the, the survey data, right? How can you believe the owner's equivalent rent? But I mean, BLS is survey data, right? And JOLTS is survey data. And uh, PMIs are survey data. We have a lot of damn survey data. I'm, I'm reading a, a book by Thomas Sowell, and he talks about having worked at the BLS, right? And there was a minimum wage discussion, right? And so they told him, look, they just hiked the minimum wage, do your research and see if we lost any jobs. And there were no jobs lost with a higher minimum wage over a period of time. but he then went further and looked at the amount of companies that still existed, and the amount of companies had dropped by about 25%. But the survey recipients, they still all had their jobs. <laughs> yeah. So we have a lot of survey data. So I'm not sure which one to dismiss, which one to not dismiss. And should we dismiss the new ideology, it's not ideology, that's not the word, methodology of calculating health insurance costs, which supposedly have dropped by like 5,000% in the last couple of weeks in CPI, which I don't see, but bullshit. Jimmy, and then it's to bullshit. Scott. I don't understand. Again, to, to your point too, the BLS for uh, the labor numbers, 49.4% responded to the survey, which is the lowest month That's in low. 10 years. The JOLTS number has gone from 75% survey recipients four short years ago to now about 30. And I might be getting some of these numbers wrong, but not very wrong. Yeah. I think that a lot of people are just fed up with the system and they don't just ah, I'm gonna throw that out. What do you think, Scott? I have an actual question, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I honestly, you know, I don't really have much of a view other than, of course, these, there, these things always come up. And I do think the pandemic has exacerbated a lot of the pre-existing issues. But on the other hand, there are, there are folks 
whose jobs are to uh, solely to make sense of of what they're seeing. And I think that you know, what, and typically we're going to see that through those revisions. Um, but they're trying to iron out some of these problems that that are real and identified. And so that's you know, while I while I was saying that you know, I think it's better to look at the direction instead of the the exact numbers, right? Okay, so back to my actual question. We're talking about jobs. We're talking about people being insulated from the interest rate hikes, right? So to me, you take that to its logical conclusion and you have to have job losses to slow the economy. That's, uh, I actually have that in my circle of people, my extended circle, where somebody's completely in insulated, re refinanced on their lows, and then shockingly lost their job. And so it, it looks like what, Jerome Powell has been saying by we need more slack in the labor market, which we all know means we need yep. a bunch of you to get fired, is the only way that we actually beat inflation down below 2% unless it just naturally comes down because it was all supply chains. What do you think about that, Scott? No, I mean, I certainly um, agree that there we have to have – there has to be some uh, additional slack, right? Um, the hard part is determining how much. Um, and because we're in such a weird point with the US labor market in general, right? I mean, you know, COVID knocked a lot of people out of the labor market. And then we totally has shut down immigration for a while, again, because of COVID. Um, and now immigration is booming. Um, and I mean, legal immigration, you look at the the numbers, they're, they're quite up, you know, back on trend, above trend. And it's just really hard to know how much more slack will be needed to kind of ring this ring this out. And especially given kind of the, the supply chain side stuff too. Um, you know, you could, I think, quite reasonably have a situation where the unemployment rate goes up to four and a half percent, which you guys know is not like historically terrible. Right. And job growth slows to a trickle, 30, 40,000 jobs a month. And that's not a recession. And, and then inflation's does actually get, we do kind of get this soft landing, right? I, it's really hard to, to really say. Um, but I think that's a, a, a totally reasonable projection of things. Um, it, you know, it could get a lot worse, but mm. it could, you could kind of sit in that kind of glide path down to that. That's kind of, I wouldn't call it stagnation, but pretty close. I, I have a question. And if you don't want to answer this question, just again, and anytime on this show, if we're asking the wrong questions, just yeah. tell us, no, that's a stupid question. We'll move on. Does the Cato Institute look at the uh, field for presidential candidates and say to themselves, that person has a good economic policy, and then do they come out and support somebody by name? No, most definitely not. I mean, I should start with the fact that uh, Cato has no institutional positions at all. Um, with well, I, I should say almost none. There, there have been a couple in the history of the organization, go back to the 1970s. But in general, um, we don't make institutional statements. Second, because we are a 501c3 nonprofit educational organization, we, we try to stay out of the politics, you know, in, especially in terms of, you know, involving in campaigns and making endorsements. We don't do that. Um, and we're, we're so apolitical intentionally, you know, we don't really even sign a lot of like coalition letters and stuff. We just don't do that. Individual scholars might have specific opinions on like, for example, my, my colleague, Chris Edwards just did a piece looking at Republican candidate spending plans. Um, and so certainly we'll get into the weeds of specific policies and sp things, specific things, but we're not going to get into kind of broader endorsements of, of can candidates or platforms. So, so when, so let's switch it to policy then, which we prefer, because we always, Bobby and I have been accused of being political. For so I, I don't give a shit about politics. I care a ton about macroeconomic policy. Same. So when you are looking at a candidate or, or looking at a change in government, would you want less profligate spending. I would guess that that's an absolute, yeah, yeah of course. You know, regulatory reform, making companies, make it easier to, what other, what are the major policies you look for? Energy policy, perhaps? Yeah. So, so for me personally, my big thing is economic dynamism. I want policy that cranks up the kind of churn and risk 
and reward in the economy. And so that that's going to be uh, regulatory, trade, immigration, to a lesser extent, uh, certainly tax as well, and then to a lesser extent spending. I, I'll leave the spending stuff to my colleagues. Of course, I'm, I'm a, a, you know, I want government spending to be cut. I want the budget to be generally balanced. But from, from my kind of focus, I'm looking at people who want to have policies that allow workers to to change jobs easily, for have companies to start businesses easily, and just let government, you know, kind of get out of the way, including in things like antitrust as well. Just get out of the way, let let companies operate, don't get in their business. As we're recording, the JetBlue Spirit deal was just uh, nixed. So yeah. that's getting blocked to your antitrust point. But so back to rates, real quick, if we could. I keep thinking about so Janet Yellen basically pronounced a soft landing, right? And again, I look at it personally like snow in Chicago, right? <laughs> uh, it might be January and it may not have snowed yet, but you're certainly not going to declare victory over snow in Chicago in January, mm -hmm. right? As they saw this past weekend, it's going to snow in Chicago. And when I see so many things point into a recession, and I know that all of these things together, well, let's just take the yield curve. It's only been wrong once since about 1950, right? And this was the uh, longest stretch of inversion and the deepest inversion we've seen. And I look at rates, and is it possible that given what we're seeing now, that rates have actually just normalized and the economy was stronger to deal with it, sans the pandemic? Like I think about business owners that are our age, for, and I mean me and Jimmy, I think you're a lot younger than us. But uh, well, let's get age, some clarification on that real yeah. quick. How old are you, Scott? I'm 47. Oh, yeah, you're 10 years younger than us. Okay. So uh, I had my license when you were six. I think that math works. So. Um, Look at it from this point. You, you have business owners out there. Jim owns a restaurant, Brandt, Brandt's of Palatine, open Monday through Thursday, 1030 to uh, 930. Uh, I'm sorry, 11 to 930, Friday, Saturday, Saturday, 11 to 1030. Yes. Closed Sundays, voted best burger in Chicago. So he has a restaurant, right? Yep. And But he's old enough to know that a Fed funds rate between 6 and 8% isn't actually shocking in a 10-year note right around 4% isn't like crisis level. Businesses right. grew during that period. So what's the fulcrum? What's the problem that drives everyone to think that these rates are just completely insanely high? Is it just youth or is it something else? I mean, I, I think it's a great question. First point is I think the most important is that um, we we youngins are, uh, are, we don't remember a time when rates were this high. I mean, I can kind of, I can remember, well, but like I wasn't really, last yeah, well, was I, was say, I wasn't paying attention. Yeah. I can remember it, but I wasn't yeah. actually paying attention to it. The other thing though is, uh, and, and so, so I think that's, that's totally correct. Um, but I don't know if it's as much a kind of a shock to the, the gen X and millennial managers out there. I, that doesn't strike me as likely. Instead, it seems to me that the risk is some sort of, uh, shock that kind of causes everybody to clinch up at once. Right. I, you know, and that's, I think the, the rate hikes. Uh, well, I, yeah. And I think, so I think. The rate hikes have, have done some of their work in terms of slowing down the economy, just not as much as we thought given the, the magnitude and, and speed. But things are definitely slower. And as I mentioned, they're kind of teetering on this kind of – we're at this kind of, like you said, fulcrum point. So you know, if you have some sort of big event – um, you know, I mentioned commercial real estate, for example, yeah, in my in my piece. So if you have just something that that is a shock and that causes people in multiple industries all at once to kind of clinch up, pause hiring, increase layoffs, whatever, then you could you could kind of see it cascade through um, the economy for sure. I guess where I'm going with that is I think I think the Fed is political, but I think they're inarguably political if they cut rates this year just yeah. based on where the economy is. Because if we didn't have a very long and variable lag for the hikes, if they happen right away and they're not affecting the market anymore, then the cuts aren't needed, right? But if the long and variable lags is real, then that means there's trouble coming and they need to cut. So look, I, I think if you look at the general direction of where most of these economic indicators are going, mm -hmm. um, in terms of jobs growth, it's kind of heading in a pretty like see, sure. three or three month 
period there it's it's heading down yeah it's um, week three months annualized for sure right yeah so it's you're kind of looking at a, a pretty pretty steady downward trend if you look at you know i mentioned those recession indicators they do seem to be not not flatlining but they're trending to slowing down as well so if you think that the fed is has not wrung out all of the heat from the economy but things are slowing and maybe lag, maybe they have really slowed, then I, I think you could see a reason for some sort of rate cuts later this year that politics notwithstanding. I, can I take a swing at your question, Bobby, and see yeah, what Scott thinks about it? Because please. yes, there's been rates that have been higher in the past. My contention is this, is that over the last 20 years specifically, you could really go to 35 years, as rates stayed inorganically low for decades, Government started putting extra layers of regulation, extra layers on almost punitive taxes, particularly in the business sector. Owning a restaurant over the last 11 years, you would be just shocked. I think in, in Illinois particularly, there's going to be a crap ton of uh, restaurants going out of business. We have some advantages over others and we're not. So when we say, oh, well, we've had, and Jim Bianco says this kind of stuff all the time, we've had rates. These are normal rates. Well, they're not normal rates in this economic environment, in my opinion, as far as government overreach. That's a reasonable conclusion, yes? Yeah, yeah. And I think the other I think the other thing that now that you mention it, the other thing to note is that a lot of companies' business plans are predicated on lower rates, right? Yeah. So they have a certain you know capital spend. They this is what they expect in terms of their financing costs, and um, and this goes you know going back to, again to commercial real estate is a sector that's really exposed to that type of change. Um, that's a, that could be a potential trigger, right? That, that they're like, oh man, my, my financing <laughs> cost just went way up. And so even though it's not historically high, it's high for them because it's uh, low rates are baked in their business model. It's interesting. Right. I always go to restaurants because Jimmy owns one. My brother owns one. My father had a restaurant supply company and then owned a restaurant. I just see them as the ultimate small business. Like I see them as very representative of small sure. business because their goal is to get to break even, just like every other business out there. Once you get to break even, you have a high probability of surviving because in a restaurant, you just need one more person to walk in the door. And now that person's a profit, right? And then two more people and then three more people. So I always go back to restaurants, but I look at it like when you talk about the regulate, regulatory environment, this to me bolsters my idea, not either one of you guys, but my idea that it's almost, I'm almost not going to be able to be convinced by anyone that the Fed isn't political if they cut rates any more than 75 basis points. And if they do it any earlier than say the third quarter, because at least it gives it time for some of the data to be decidedly lower. Three month annualized, we see that, right? No one else does. And I don't mean no one else. I mean, people who don't look at things the way the three of us do, right? And you hear people, and this drives me crazy, Scott, when I hear people telling consumers, and there's one in the New York Times who's notorious for it, that they, it isn't as bad as they feel like it is. Yeah. <laughs> and I keep trying to tell people, don't worry about whether there's a recession or not. Take care of your home. Take care of your own personal budget. Yeah. Don't worry if it's recessionary or not. Right? And Krugman and people like, oh, I said his name. I didn't mean to. Um, just telling people it's not as bad as they think it is drives me nuts. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, I first I'll, I'll plug two columns of mine. One, uh, I, I don't know if you guys saw, I wrote about uh, the bear and the restaurant industry and in particularly in Chicago and, and how uh, that's such a great uh, microcosm of small business and, yep. and that kind of economic dynamism I, I mentioned. But this the other column is people have every right to be pretty pissed off about the state of the U.S. economy. You know, this is the one of the things I know you guys are macro guys. I tend to be more of a micro guy, but, you know, the macro indicators could all be totally fine. Um, you know, the NBER recession indicators could be great, but if people are having trouble making ends meet or if they're just pissed at their grocery bill is, is 20% 30% higher than it's it was just a few years ago. If all of a sudden their car payment is $1,000 a month, which as a cheapskate myself, that causes me to go crazy. But apparently that's a very common car payment now. And, you know, given those types of things, yeah, I mean, people have every uh, have perfectly sane reasons to be pretty ticked at where they are and where the economy is, even if 
those macro recession indicators aren't aren't flashing red, right? Um, and so I I think you're right. It's really frustrating when you see, and it's not just the New York Times. It's all over the place that oh everything's great. Why don't you feel great? And I think there's pretty obvious reasons. In fact, there was actually a great study out just recently that talked about that you know people quite rationally want not just slower inflation, not just disinflation. They want deflation, regardless of whether that's good or bad for the economy, right? right, right. And they tend to, to be ticked for months after disinflation <laughs> starts, right? They don't just suddenly go, oh, eggs stopped getting more expensive. Now I'm happy, right? No, they're pissed yeah. for like, you know, uh, six months to a year afterwards, sort of until their wages catch up or until they've adjusted their spending elsewhere. So it's totally, totally normal. Um, that people aren't thrilled with with where the economy is. Now, that does, I think, argue that people that sentiment will improve this year, um, which I think would be a, a knock against the idea we're going to have a recession. But, you know, we'll, we'll see. So I, I have a quick uh, question because we talked about and you said you're not a conspiracy. You're not a conspiracy theorist, but I, I definitely am, as you probably know. So even today, you know, the announcement that student loans are going to be forgiven under 12,000, which I think is bullshit. I think they're never going to be. That's a carrot that they dangle in front of people prior to election. But you look at the Inflation Reduction Act, so many of the other enormous spending bills that have happened in the last two and a half years, and it, it begs the question, are they just incompetent or is it almost some sort of economic sabotage to be working so so aggressively against what the Fed's trying to do? Yeah, I think it's incompetence, but I, well, it's incompetence, but also I think it's transactionalism. I mean, I, something I plan to write on soon is, um, in my adult lifetime, uh, which I know isn't as long as yours, but it's still pretty long. Um, there really does seem to be a significant uptick in that government transactionalism in the sense that policy is being driven and very large chunks of policy are being driven just by paying off interest groups, right? And I see a lot of the Inflation Reduction Act uh, as that. I see the student loan stuff as that, that these are just, you know, political actors looking at the levers they have um, and say, and saying, okay, well, we need this constituent group. We need this group. How do we buy them off legally, and whether that's through protectionism and buy American rules or through subsidies or student loan forgiveness, that's what they're going to do. Uh, and, you know, the courts have been um, so reluctant, I'll put it that nicely, to push back on a lot of this, that it it just opens the door for more of it. I, I told Jimmy about a year ago that I was sick of knocking the Fed. And Jimmy's answer was, I'm not. I'm just getting warmed up. Yeah. <laughs> But the reason I was sick of knocking the Fed was to me the aggressive nature of the rate hikes. I, I, I that came six say months too late. It. That came well, six months too late, and only after did. he was agreed. finally yeah approved. Agreed, agreed, one hundred percent. But I, I just think I, I was just taking such—I shouldn't say joy, but it was joyful because I don't—I don't want people to be hurt. But I was taking such joy in watching somebody actually go, "No, this is the right thing to do, even if it's late." Yeah. Right. And I don't argue that, Jimmy, if they would have done it when you were suggesting it and you were spot on, they probably wouldn't have done the 75s. It would have been like gradual 25, maybe a 50. And maybe we'd be out of the woods at this point. And now I feel like, and, I, and I'm not sure you guys agree with me, but I feel like we're either recession or resurgence of inflation, considering that inflation is sitting around three and a half percent. And Scott, to your point, I mean, depending on which gauge you're looking at and whether healthcare continues to just collapse the way it's been. But- <laughs> I look at it like this. I, I think to myself, let's call it 3.2%. It's higher than that, but let's just call it that. 3.2% inflation. And a healthy consumer who, by the way, Jimmy and I had this theory, and I'm saying it's yours and mine, Jimmy, because you jumped on it too, that there was going to be a rash of spending over the holidays, and then consumers are going to get their credit card bills, and they're going to be like, oh, shit. And we're starting to see credit card delinquencies somewhat to the levels of, of the great financial crisis. Now, we obviously don't have the housing market anywhere near that. People are well entrenched in their low interest rate mortgages, and they're good. Car delinquencies, not at a danger zone yet. People tend to pay for their cars even before their mortgages. We saw that during the, the financial crisis, right? People are like, well, I got to drive to work. Also, with navigation systems, very easy to repo a car now. Difficult to repo a house. 
So I look at it and I say, they cannot cut rates right now. And I think they're going to. Do I focus on that way too much? And I know I sound like a guy whose trades aren't working. And I am. Where's the question in that? There's not a question. <laughs> my I want you guys to tell me my trades are going to work. You know my well, steepener's working that I've been talking about I for know. two months. I You're put it on at negative 52s, 10s. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm the most boring investor in the world, so I got nothing for you. Um, <laughs> all my all my uh, investments are on autopilot. Uh, I don't so touch them. The and, you have any view on commodities? There, just a question. Do I or does Scott? I don't want to everything. I needed to put a question in there. Scott. It's not my show. My question to Scott is this: Is that when you came on the show, did you expect two floor trader dagos who didn't know shit from Chicago and be honest with us? <laughs> you did, didn't you? <laughs> no, I, I had honestly, yeah, I didn't know what did. to expect. But I'm glad that for once, uh, I, I get to kind of be the voice of reason. That's uh, yeah, that's rare that's what I in, in these. No, uh, I, I do. I need that as because I sometimes. And again, when I my, it's not a hyperinflation scenario that when the Fed starts selling long, it's I, I think that. And the reason I'm long the the dollar hedge portfolio is not even because necessarily I think that the dollar is going to collapse. In markets, you have to predict what other people are going to do. And I think other people are going to predict the collapse of the dollar. And again, we if we're going to get hyperinflation, that means the dollar is going to collapse against every other currency. So the peso, the bolivar, all these bullshit currencies out there from countries that have never been able to balance a budget no matter what. So I, I don't think there's a chance of hyperinflation. You put it at 0% chance, Scott, or no? Yeah, I put it at 0%. Yeah, I, I want to clarify. I don't think it's hyper, but I think we could see 5%. Oh, I know. I know you don't. I think yeah. we see a five handle easy, and I think that would trouble yeah. uh, people at the Fed. But I just I guess, think if they come out and say Jay Powell's being relieved of his duties because he's not, he's not willing to buy bonds, that's when I jump in and buy more gold. That's very scary. Yeah. You got Scott, I got to point something out to you. You probably noticed. Jim and I are very like disciplined and risk-based traders when we agree with each other. But when we disagree, this is a floor trade. We're both 100% in the opposite way. Like yeah. fall in, liquefy everything, and set, liquidate everything and put it all against Jimmy. That's just emotional <laughs> tempers. But we don't actually make that trade. We just argue for that trade. We just argue right? about it. Yeah. I was a former lawyer and I'd say, you know, nothing I say here is financial advice. Uh, please, uh, you know, uh, take your own risks. You could be our divorce mediator when Jimmy and I separate over a trade someday in the future. Thank you so much. This has been a ton of fun. I, I love talking to you. I think it's yeah. uh, been great. As I started the show with, you people think that we're idiots. That's fine. We know that Scott's not an idiot. And sometimes we hate having such smart people on the show because he does make us look a little bit dumb by comparison. Yeah. But we're willing to risk it for you people. Absolutely. So thank you very much, Scott. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me.